Is India a tea market or is there a coffee culture shaping in the country? Who is the audience in India for coffee? The food and the beverages segment in India has gone through dramatic changes through the last couple of years. What has changed and what hasn't for them? Also, in the last 5-6 years, we have seen brands scale up with speed in India. What are the factors that brands are leveraging for discontinuous growth? Welcome to Speak Easy with Dheeraj Sana and today I am talking to Matt Chitranjan, the founder of Blue Tokai Coffee Roasters. Matt has his roots in India and has been brought up in the West. He specialized in economics and worked as a research assistant before taking a giant leap into entrepreneurship. Started as a pet project in Delhi in 2013, the Blue Tokai Coffee House now has over 50 cafes in Delhi, Mumbai, Kolkata and Gurugram. Matt, welcome to Speak Easy with Dheeraj Sinha. Hi Dheeraj, thanks for having me. Great to have you. Looking forward to this conversation. So Matt, I'll jump straight away, right? I mean, you've had a very interesting journey from real estate to hedge funds and now one of the if i may say sexiest coffee brand right what's was the journey been like and how did you land up on coffee yeah yeah so actually i'm originally from the us though my father's indian he was brought up in chennai but uh, i was born and brought up in the us then i went to college at nyu and did a economics degree and then after graduation i moved to the bay area and i was in the bay area at a time when especially coffee was really taking off and becoming part of the mainstream coffee culture So while I was working in uh, economic and real estate consulting there I started roasting coffee as a hobby on the side. So I was working doing this consulting job. I thought at one point that uh, I wanted to become a professor. So I left the consulting and moved to Canada to do a master's degree in economics. I quickly realized that academia wasn't really for me. It was too theoretical, but it really got me interested in international economic development when I was there. So then I transitioned into a career doing that. I I was in the Middle East for a year, moved back to the US, and then in 2011 there was an opportunity to move to India to work at an organization called IFMR in Chennai. So the job itself was very interesting to me. It was kind of a blend of academia plus on the ground execution and having Indian origins but not really having spent a lot of time in India. I thought it would be great to come to India for a year and live and, and kind of experience what it was like here. little did i know that it would totally change my life so while i was at ifmr i ended up meeting my wife she was also working there we were looking to move outside of chennai and so we moved to delhi in 2012 and there were both at points in our career where we wanted to do something on our own so because coffee was something that we were both quite passionate about and you know i had roast as a hobby something that we started looking at because for us as consumers we were finding it very difficult to get good quality coffee in delhi so at that time In 2012 there were the commodity coffee brands sort of the cafe coffee days the baristas the costas or there was very expensive imported coffee India has a 110% import duty which is why you don't really see the variety of beans from around the world that you get in other countries because it's cost prohibitive here so we started doing some research and we found that there are estates in India who were growing very high quality beans but they were exporting those beans So we went down south, we connected with these growers and we convinced them to sell us their export quality coffee and we launched uh selling online in 2013. Yeah. And you know, I mean India's typically at least on a large scale at least from outside seen as a tea market, right? I mean the morning tea and the subah ki chai, the whole mythology, the whole narrative is around tea, right? So why coffee 
of course, we understand that. But what's your perspective? Is it really a tea market or do you see a great coffee culture shaping up in this country as well? Or have you had to build a category per se? So I think more than tea versus coffee, India is a milk drinking country. So in the North, people drink tea and in the South, people drink a lot of filtered coffee. But ultimately, the base is, is people want to have, have milk. So I think there's a couple of things in terms of coffee. One is that coffee producing countries are typically have been these lower income countries around the equator. And so they've been traditionally exporting the coffee to Western markets because that's where coffee drinkers were and that's where they were able to get better realization. But now in the past 10, 20 years, these countries have grown and developed themselves. And so now there's domestic coffee markets have developed and sprouted. And so now more and more people are opting for coffee versus tea, which is what they used to drink. That being said, when 2013, when we started, there was not really a strong understanding or appreciation of us doing coffee the way that we were doing it, right? So it was very important for us to highlight the fact that these coffees come from particular estates and these estates have different farming practices and processing methods. And that ultimately leads to these unique flavors in the cup of coffee. And so having that transparency and traceability back to the farm and, and telling their story, roasting the coffee fresh and helping people understand how to brew. We had to do a lot in terms of education and outreach to help people you know, understand th these aspects and help grow the market. Yeah. And talk to us a bit more about how do you understand the brand Blue Tokai, right? Because you've gone from online to cafe chains, now cold brew cans. So what's the construct of the brand? How do you see the brand? How do you see expansion around the brand Blue Tokai? For us, our goal is to be the go-to brand for anybody looking for a good cup of coffee, no matter wherever or however they want to drink it. So I think one interesting thing about coffee and coffee drinkers is that there's so many different use cases and touch points. Some people brew coffee in the morning at home themselves, while other people have it at office. Some people stop at a cafe and pick it up. And even within the people who brew it at home, there's so many different methods of, and preparations. So for us as a brand, we would like to be top of consumer's mind when they want to go through all of these different use cases. So when you want to go to a cafe, it should be a Butokai cafe. When if your office cares about serving good quality coffee to its employees and guests, they would have our machines or and source beans from us. You know, restaurants and hotels who are looking to upgrade their coffee game would work with us on beans and equipment and training. And most importantly, the coffee that people would drink at home would be our coffee. Now, I think India, like every other market, people care a lot about convenience. Uh, and there is some perception that brewing coffee at home is a you know, difficult process. You have to have all this fancy equipment or you have to have, a, you know, training in terms of how to brew the coffee in the correct manner. And while that is true to some extent, right, having good quality equipment and following a recipe does make a difference, we want to focus on bringing good quality coffee products that kind of remove that friction point. So things like the cans, the easy pours, the cold brew bags, all of these ready to brew and ready to drink products are a focus for us to get more people into drinking better quality coffee. A good thing about good quality coffee is that once you start getting used to the taste, it's very difficult to go back to drinking kind of average or commodity coffee, right? You would prefer to have no coffee rather than having, you know, low quality coffee. Uh, so I was just saying, if we're able to reach people through these different touch points, then the more and more people are exposed to good quality coffee, then the more likely they're, they're going to be sticky and you know, stay drinking good quality coffee. Yeah. So that happened in our office, right? We moved to a new office in January. And the idea behind the office was we wanted to build 
India's largest coffee shop. We didn't want to build an office because the whole idea was that when you go to a coffee shop, right, it doesn't judge you whether you're vice president or you're a director or you are a CEO. The coffee shop doesn't judge, right? It's the quality of conversation. Uh, that it facilitates. And the coffee shop doesn't have a color of its own. So that was the idea behind building the new new office. And we actually wanted the aroma of coffee being brewed and being roasted to be there. So we contacted one of the local roasters here. Uh, and I think at some point in time, the quality of beans which were coming weren't of the same standard as we started. And suddenly there was a story being floated that, oh, the agency is doing cost cutting. <laughs> and to, to your point, that once you're yeah. used to that taste and that quality, you can never go back. I personally, though, shifted to mocha brewing, right? So I'm using mocha grind and all of that. But tell me, uh, I mean, on the revolution that you started pretty much, right? I mean, Blue Tokai was one of the early mover brands. Now, suddenly, the whole space looks like a lot of people coming in, right? I mean, there's Casey Roasters in Bombay, there's Sleepy Owl. I don't even remember all the names. So how's the category looking? Is it looking very saturated? Are there too many players fighting for the same pie or... Or are you looking at them as frenemies that more people are actually expanding the market? How's that looking and how's that going with so much activity and so much clutter in the category? Yeah, I think it's definitely more frenemies because the stage that India is at in terms of coffee and coffee consumption, it's just taking off now. So there's lots of wide space for different brands to cater to different audiences with their unique proposition and unique messaging. So I don't see the number of new entrants indicates that, you know, more and more people are getting into coffee and drinking coffee. So overall, I see it as a positive thing that, you know, it seems like every week there's a new roaster popping up. I just think that it's most important that, you know, there's in terms of sort of saturation and competition that brands be authentic, right? And they have an authentic messaging that resonates with customers. I think right now coffee is considered a bit cool at the moment. And so maybe it's easy to jump on this trend and you know, start a business uh, using a lot of buzzwords. But ultimately, I think consumers will appreciate authenticity, regardless of, of what segment you're playing in. It's not that you have to always be authentically premium. There's plenty of space in mass premium or, you know, more mass brands as well. Yeah. What have been your uh, learnings or challenges building this business and brand? Because, I mean, we have a couple of friends in the hospitality business, right? Samir said, who runs uh, Hunger Inc. and, uh, you know, Bombay Canteen, you know, and Gauri Devi Dayal, who runs Table, and they've been on the show. And and they do tell us that, you know, it sounds cool from an advertising framework that one day I'll have a cafe of my own and, and chill. But it's really, really hard work at the back end to run a F&B business. So what's been your hard points on this? Uh, yeah, I think cafes themselves are difficult businesses to run. I think there is a lot of one operational complexity. You know, one cafe can have 15, 20 staff members. And so managing those people and, and making sure that they're trained and able to deliver the experience that you would like to deliver. I think on top of that is layered with all of these regulations and taxation and you know licensing, which is very, very complicated. And that requires its own entire department to run that when you're having uh, you know any kind of business at, at scale. I think for us, we have more than 50 cafes across the country and cafes are a significant part of our business. The goal for us was never to be a cafe company. Cafes were just one of the business lines that we operate. Because kind of at the stage that India was at in terms of the premium coffee segment, having these physical touch points was really important for people to interact with the baristas, understand what's different about Butokai, and ultimately taste the coffee. But at the end of the day, we were very much focused on coffee as a product 
And cafes are just one of the channels that we, you know, sell coffee through. Yeah. And that sounds interesting, right, Matt? Because it's kind of a departure from whatever we've understood or read about how the coffee business at least started or shaped up, right? I mean, the whole theory around Starbucks being the third place, right? And I mean, the visual imagery of, you know, startups being launched out of coffee shops and, you know, this idea of three people sitting on a in a cafe, you know, with headphones and using the cafe Wi-Fi more than the coffee. So are you saying the whole business of coffee is shifting a little bit more away from being it about being a place or a space where people bonded and community happened to more, you know, coffee as a moment in a day. And there could be multiple moments of coffee. Is there a transition in the way we're seeing the business and the role of coffee itself in people's lives? I mean, I think there's definitely still this idea of a cafe as a third place. And we, you know, in our cafes, we have people who sit the entire day and they come every day. And so it's like an office for them. But I do think that as coffee consumption, so that's kind of at the starting point, right? Is that cafes are a cool place to hang out and, you know, you, you visit them, not necessarily only for the coffee. But once you start drinking that coffee and getting used to that coffee, then you want that coffee across other formats and other channels. So I think that's kind of the evolution that happens when a coffee industry, I mean, especially the premium coffee industry starts to grow is that it, it, cafes are you know, leaders in that sense because they're such good venues for customer engagement and, and customer acquisition. But ultimately, once you have uh, those customers into specialty coffee, then how do you cater to their other use cases? Yeah. And how do you see the brand Blue Tokai? I mean, do you see it stretching across uh, customer segments and price points? I mean, because I remember at one point in time, we were pitching for Mini for BMW. And, and we felt that, you know, Blue Tokai and Mini and Napadori, all these brands kind of went together. Now, that's good from that perspective, but it's also very, very premium kind of a touch feel. And therefore, how do you see the brand? Do you the, see the brand being there? Or do you think that you need to stretch the brand down a bit? How are you looking at the stretch part of Blue Tokai? Yeah, so I think that in terms of quality of product, we will always be premium. Uh, that's something that we'll never compromise on. And it's, uh, it's something that we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that we source and roast and the best quality possible and put those into to products that, that do justice to that coffee. At the same time, uh, actually, you know, we have this perception of being a very premium brand, but our price point in the cafe is on uh, is, is actually cheaper than uh, a Starbucks or a Costa or some of the other kind of more mass premium brands. So uh, I think in a sense, it's nice to have the perception of being very premium, but being uh, a little bit more affordable than the very kind of niche premium segment. Yeah, I understand that. And do you have a sense of what kind of audiences come to you? Is it more Gen Z? Is it more millennials? Or that's not a cut at all. It's all kinds of people. It's all kinds of people. We don't really get the sort of the college crowd. It starts kind of from working professionals on up. The bulk of our customers are 20 to 44. And so that's kind of where our our sweet spot is. Yeah. And coming to the Black Swan event that we all faced, uh, Matt, right? The pandemic, right? And obviously, pandemic has changed the nature of many, many things and not change the nature of many, many things. Now, I mean, we are going back to physical retail and we are going back to offices and some of the D2C brands that we work with are actually seeing some bit of decline in online takeoff and they are now going offline as well. The hardcore D2C brands, right? Uh, so how did pandemic affect your business? What changes uh, did it make for good or nothing at all? 
So pandemic was uh, very challenging for us because we, at that point in time, we had 30 cafes. It was around 70% of our business. And especially when the first lockdown happened, there wasn't, you know, it was a very new thing. There wasn't any certainty of how long COVID was going to be here for, how long was the lockdown going to happen. And with that in mind, we had to take, you know, a very hard look at our business and make some tough choices in order to make sure that, that we, you know, survived. Plus side, I think having, uh, being forced to look at cost structures really helped us improve our performance. And it also helped us put in place more systems and processes with regards to communication to employees. That's when we started doing town halls to communicate with, with all the team members and let them know everything that was going on in the company. And also in terms of sort of operational and safety processes that we continue to use today. It also, you know, like many other brands led to a big jump in, in e-commerce sales. And, and so we were lucky in the sense that we already had an e-commerce business running before that. And it was fairly easy for us to transition resources towards uh, supporting that growth. The other big thing that I think has been a change, whether it's how beneficial it is, well, it remains to be seen, but uh, there's been a huge increase in, in delivery. Even as things have opened up, our delivery orders continue to increase. And so I think that's really led to a shift in consumer behavior, whereas previously people didn't really think about ordering coffee for, for delivery. Now it's a trend that's that's here to stay, uh, even as yeah. as everything opens yeah. up. Which possibly also means that new points of consumption have opened up for your category. Yeah. And I think it's also, I mean, if even if I look at my own behavior, I have you know, access to all the coffee. I have all the brewing equipment at home, but sometimes in the morning, I'm just too lazy to make a cup of coffee. And what I do is I go to Zomato and I order from Blutokai and it comes in, uh, you know, 20, 30 minutes. So I think that that convenience aspect is something that's really powerful in terms of, you know, what customers are looking for at this point in time. Yeah. Yeah, some of these changes that we've experienced ourselves. So for example, right at the onset of the pandemic, we set up a leaders team of 50 people uh, right and and every tuesday so today was supposed to be but we're recording this so we do it tomorrow but every tuesday for the last two years we have this leaders call where 50 of the top leaders of the organization we come together we discuss business we discuss how things are going and we make decisions together and and that is brought i mean we are like four geography agency right and it's brought everybody together like how and and we won't leave that uh, even now that we have gone back to offices. I mean, that's something we've come closer than ever that we were. So, yeah, definitely. Talking about technology a bit, Matt, right? I mean, a lot of our friends who are in the business of food say that we knew how to create an experience in the restaurant. We knew how to plate food. We knew how to curate food. And suddenly, post-pandemic, they realized that they had to become more technologists than food people, right? So, figuring out online, figuring out websites, figuring out menu. I mean, things have changed, right? Even till today, you go to a restaurant and they give you a QR code. They don't hand you a menu. So some of that has changed. How do you see the role of technology? Is it going to increase further? Is it for good? Is it going to stay here? Or are we going to revert back to comfortable physical things all around? I mean, I think there'll be a blend. I mean, I personally hate this QR code uh, <laughs> menu half the time. Uh, the, yeah, I stick it away the touch feel. Yeah, and half the time it doesn't open on the phone or, you know, like the, it's not scanning. But I do see, you know, it has a lot of benefits as well. It's very easy to change the menu and bring in new items. You don't have to print everything every time. And so I think these sort of interventions are going to, you know, only increase. Actually, what I, for coffee in particular, what I see happening in the next several years is that 
there's going to be even more automation in terms of the the coffee preparation side and, and even on the food side. But I think if it's done well, that will actually allow baristas to have more time to engage with people. So they won't have to spend their time working on uh, preparation of the drinks. They can, you know, spend very little time on that and still produce a high quality drink. But then they'll be freed up to sort of engage with customers, uh, help guide them more in terms of finding beverages or coffee or food items that they would like and explaining, you know, more about the, the coffee and having it be more of an interactive process. So you're hinting an automation of the production line as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. The other one I want to discuss with you, Matt, is that, you know, if you look at, say, 10 years ago, right, we used to take at least a decade to build and scale brands, right, or even more, right? It took huge amount of time to build big brands, to scale them up and so on and so forth. But last five, six years, you know, we've seen so many brands being launched, scaled up, you know, most brands are going 10x and so on and so forth. Now there's some bit of drying of the funding. Uh, let's see how that goes. But speed has become a very critical part of building businesses, scaling up, right? What's been your experience in that? I mean, you're saying you have about 40 cafes and so on and so forth and you know, products across price points. You've scaled up quite fast as well. So what's, what's behind the speed? And do you see this as an advantage, as a rocket that you are riding? What's, what's your sense on speed and scale of business? Yeah, I think now there's so many more channels for a brand to to grow on. I think in the past, especially for consumer brands, you were really restricted to more being present in offline channels. And now growth of e-commerce and hyperlocal and e-grocery and now quick commerce. There's just so many different ways to reach consumers. So if you're able to get a toehold in, in a few of those, you can scale very rapidly. I also think that an, uh, you know another uh, factor behind this is that India is, is, is developing and uh, as, as sort of incomes rise, you know, there's a greater opportunity for consumer bands to get more wallet share from, from you know, people who have more money in their pockets. And I think that this, this is going to accelerate further as, you know, India continues to, to grow. I think uh, this year it was supposed to be, India is supposed to be the largest fast growing economy in, in the world. So I, I hope, you know, I hope this, this growth can continue. Are you holding your belief in the D2C story of India or are you also kind of doubting uh, the flow of money and so on and so forth as being touted? I think that a lot of money had gone into uh, growth at any cost. So I think that capital is probably going to dry up. It'll be, money will still continue to flow to brands that um, have shown product market fit and are operating with, you know, fairly healthy unit economics. Uh, I think the the money that was chasing you know, kind of the, the the people who are less frugal with the money, that, yeah. that money probably is not yeah. available right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. so unit economics and, and running a profitable, sustainable business with perhaps a brand moat uh, will count a lot more than it ever has. And help us, Matt, with, I mean, you've successfully built a D2C brand in last over a decade. What would be your key learnings and challenges? Uh, what would you say are the top two, three big mantras to building a successful D2C brand in this country? What are top two, three challenges that one should look out for? I mean, I think it's important to first understand that building a business is a process and you really have to love that process. You know, you, you know, you hear people say, do what you love. So I, I think that, you know, I love coffee, but at the end of the day, I spend most of my time working on running a business, right? Not involved in picking the best coffee or, uh, or drinking a lot of coffee. So the yeah. other thing that I think that is incredibly important is, is having a good team. Um, and I think, you know, from the beginning, having the right people in place, that's really 
kind of make or break for for your brand uh, as a as an individual. Even if you're, you know, so it was this business was started by Namrata and I. Might be brought on another co-founder later, but even between the three of us, we can only do so much. So it's really up to you know the the second and third layers and making sure that you have really strong people there and and working with them and developing them and make sure that they you know not only buy into the the vision of the company but are able to yeah. execute according yeah. to, to what you expect and. Talking about leadership, right? Obviously, during pandemic, leadership has come under a lot of focus, right? People have had to take decisions. I mean, they never thought they would. They've learned things. And while a lot is being spoken about, you know, mental health and so on and so forth of employees and people, not much has been spoken about leaders, uh, right? And so from your perspective, A, during pandemic, B, otherwise, in the overall running of your business in last more than a decade or so, what are the big leadership lessons that you've learned what are the big leadership mantras that you follow for yourself i think one thing is uh that i've come to realize the value of is the importance of communication i'm a very kind of to the point person if something can be said in five words yeah. i'll say it in three words and i expect that other people to kind of piece <laughs> that together and i think when you're at a stage of the business where, you know, you're working alongside people and everybody has close contact with with the founders and at a, maybe at a smaller scale, that can work because so much can just be brought through osmosis. But as you kind of scale and grow, you really have to communicate to bring other people along with you and make sure that they understand where, where you're heading to. And I think that's something that I've, I'm working on and, and, and trying to develop. And in a sense, I feel like it's over communication, but <laughs> to the people, to the people who are talking to, maybe they still feel like it's still under communication. But I think that's something that I really, as a leader, it's really important that, that people understand what's going on in your head and, and what's going on with the company and, and things that you feel should be obvious to everybody probably aren't. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, that's I mean, that's a great lesson for me as well to take up and, and, and work on because you're, it's, it's never enough, right? I mean, also because you keep people completely, uh, I mean, constantly coming on board, it's almost always never enough. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's kind of what can, can really make or break. You know, if, if people feel like, all of these things are happening within the company and, and they don't know what's, yeah. what's going on. You know, that leads to a lot of frustration. Yeah, yeah. And what would your advice be, uh, Matt? I mean, there's so many young people in India right now, startup. I mean, people are passing out of college and they're thinking, should I, uh, you know, start a job or should I uh, do a startup? It's become rather fashionable uh, in today's times with the younger generation. What would be your advice? to young entrepreneurs listening to the podcast, thinking of, uh, you know, jumping uh, into the world of startups, what would be your top few advice? I think that, you know, uh, if I look at my kind of journey and uh, even if I look at my, the way that we kind of run the company, a lot of it is based upon what I did or didn't like from my work experience. And if I didn't have that work experience before starting my own business, I think it would be hard to, I, I think in a way there would have been a lot more mistakes. So I think that having some kind of, you know, working in different types of companies, whether it's smaller companies or larger companies to have varied experiences and then starting your own venture can have uh, a lot of lessons that you'll be able to apply to your to your startup. At the same time, I find that having Blue Tokai is much more rewarding than any job that I ever held. So there's definitely a trade-off there can kind of bypass maybe 
some of the, the corporate jobs and things and, and, and jump right into something that has the potential to be very rewarding. So it's a difficult trade-off. I, I mean, I think that there's no real uh, right answer. It really depends on, on your individual situation. Um, but I think that there's, there's definitely pros and cons of both. I don't think that even now, sometimes I think, oh, it would be nice to have a job, a nine to five job where, where, I, where I'm off on the weekends and, and don't have uh, all of these responsibilities weighing on me. But uh, I mean, overall, it's, 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 it's something that I would never trade. Yeah. And, and my last question, Matt, I mean, for a lot of us, you know, at the end of the day or in the middle of the day, you know, we sit down with a cup of coffee and we chill and relax and time to collect. What's, what's that for you? What's that for Matt? What's Matt's, uh, you know, sit down and chill? companion and moment? I like sitting down and having coffee with my daughters and wife in the morning. We read books and do a little bit of playing together before we start the day. So that's really the time that I, I use to sort of kickstart everything. Nice. Amazing. So good talking to you, Matt, today. At this point in the podcast, we turn the mic around. Great. So uh, you mentioned India is a, a chai country. So are you a chai person or a, a coffee drinker? So I'm mixed. My morning always starts with a cup of tea. And then I think I think I do about three or four cups of tea and three or four cups of coffee. There's a lot of caffeine. Wow. For wow. The day. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but but I love coffee as well. And, and as I told you, so we have, you know, boutique roasting coffee coming to office and we place a lot of importance to the quality of beans and all of that. So yeah, both. Great, great to hear. Uh, so for us, you know, we do a lot of collaborations with bookstores and cafes. So coffee and books is something that goes very well together. Uh, what are some of the books that you would find on your coffee table? Yeah, so I would be, I mean, with same books that I, you know, kind of read or the authors that I follow. So there would be Malcolm Gladwell, there would be Adam Grant, uh, you know, there's Atish uh, Tasir on my table right now. So the kind of stuff that I read. So not those fancy picture India Taj Mahal books, but <laughs> most of them are deep theoretical books that I kind of follow. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. So our business kind of started from a hobby. It was it started as more of a passion project. So if you weren't an admin, what would you be and why? So if I wouldn't be an admin, I would actually be a KPMG consultant. Because <laughs> that's where I was on, in the fork on the road, right? I mean, I had, I had an offer from KPMG to join them. And then I had an offer to go to the comms school, Micah, and I choose the latter, right? So I was an economics graduate and all my friends were actually getting into their finance or an MBA and all of that. And I chose this path early on. So if, if I wasn't doing this, I would be a, a finance consultant making a lot of money though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then the last question for you is, uh, since you've chosen to be an admin, how do you provoke the masses to sort of change their habits through advertising? Yeah. So our biggest learning, Matt, has been that uh, you can't change habits by asking people to change, right? Because uh, I mean, our learning is that people are scared of change. I mean, they, they want other people to change. They want to see change happen at a mass level before anybody jumps. And that means that everybody's just waiting for everybody else to jump. And that never happens. We are able to build change through points of familiarity. Right. So, for example, as you're saying that if people want to drink milk, I'll, I'll give them coffee with milk. Uh, so so we would we would change people through points of familiarity. We will give them what they're familiar with and then slowly uh, kind of up the temperature on the new. And that's how we've managed to bring about all the change that we've managed to in this market, whether it's building e-commerce for Amazon or whether it's building digital payments for phone pay or now building the habit of streaming music uh, for Spotify. 
throughout uh, we've managed to build change through points of familiarity and comfort people fundamentally don't like change and surprise that's uh, very interesting and definitely something that we'll we'll try and put in place <laughs> with with our marketing uh, that we do at, at, at yeah. Guy. yeah yeah amazing thank you so much matt great to have you on board today and just one last thing matt for people who are listening to our podcast and they want to reach you uh, for a comment a conversation or or anything else What's the best way to reach you? So I'm on LinkedIn, or you can send me a message on Instagram also. It's Matt underscore Chit. Superb. Awesome. Great to have you, Matt. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Coffee consumption is just about taking off in India, says Matt. More and more people are drinking coffee. Every week, there's a new roaster popping up, and India is seeing a sort of coffee revolution. Matt is totally okay with people coming and hanging around at his cafes. Once people begin to consume coffee at the cafe, they start to look for that coffee in different formats, in offices and at home. Matt talks about the proliferation of several channels as one of the key driving factors behind brands being able to scale up fast. In the past, especially for the consumer brands, there were only offline outlets. But today, e-commerce, hyper-local formats, e-grocery, and so many more different channels are at the disposal of consumer brands to reach out to their consumers. And if you can get a toehold into a few of these channels, you are able to grow really rapidly. The other factor that Matt talks about is that India is growing and their incomes are on the rise. Across categories, there's opportunity in getting the share of wallet from the growing Indian consumer base. As the pandemic hit, Blue Tokai beat the challenge by shifting resources towards online retail. The consumer's need for convenience turned out to be one of the key drivers for Blue Tokai in this situation. Matt spoke about automating the coffee-making process so that the barista will have more time to deliver the experience that consumers desire. One piece of advice that Matt shared for the budding entrepreneurs is to understand that business is a process and to fall in love with the process rather than the outcome. He suggests that the young should explore and gather some work experience before starting their own. This will help them learn something unique that you could use later on. Well, those were my learnings from this conversation. What were yours? 